Well, this evening we continue our study of the book of Revelation in a series we've entitled Revelation, the Next Dimension. And if you were here with us last week, we were given an excursion. We were taken to heaven with John and we're, we're given a glimpse of heaven and specifically the throne of God with God on that throne in heaven holding within his hand a scroll. That scroll was written on the inside and on the out and was sealed with seven seals. A proclamation was made throughout all of heaven. Is there anyone who is capable of taking this scroll and loosening its seals? And out of all of creation, none was found worthy. None could approach the Father and remove the scroll from his hand due to the fact that they were counted unworthy. What does that mean? For that scroll was the redemptive title to the earth. The earth after its creation and all that was created on it, and then man being created, man then was given dominion over the entire world. When man fell and sinned before God, he relinquished that authority. And Satan had interjected, and death had entered, and sin had entered, and man was no longer perfect, and therefore he was no longer able to have that same dominion and to interact and to commune with God because of his imperfection. Something needed to remedy that. And the call going out to all creation and none being able to respond was indication that no one there of that creation uh, in heaven, on the earth, or beneath the earth, as it is stated in chapter 5, could respond to that invitation. They were unworthy to do so. All had been affected by sin and death. All were guilty before the Father. And John begins to weep bitterly, knowing that the future then was uncertain. That what God wanted to do to complete the redemption of the world could not be executed unless one was found worthy to take that scroll. And the invitation went out and only one was able to respond. The angel said to John, Don't weep, for one like a lamb is able and is worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the Father and to loosen its seals, to allow the final act of redemption to take place, the return of the creation to its original state, the judgment of the fallen world to take place, all found within that scroll. And as the Lamb proceeded, he then proceeded to the throne room of God. In the throne room of God, he then proceeded to the throne, removed the scroll from the hand of the Father, and all of heaven broke out in rejoicing and worship. That's just a glimpse of what we saw last week together. But today, as we continue our look at the book of Revelation, we find ourselves in chapter 6, and we begin begin this evening by watching the Lamb begin to open those seven seals. It means that the the scroll was sealed with authority and only one who was worthy could open it. 
only one who was the rightful heir, the, uh, the one that was worthy to do so could loosen these seals. And in the breaking of every seal, and you know what a seal is, it is that wax deposit that is placed on a scroll, and then an image is placed within it, usually showing a stamp of authority, the crest of a family, whatever it may be. There were seven of these seals on this particular document. That's significant because great work has been done um, since the writing of Revelation in history. And historians have found, and archaeologists have found, that when the Roman emperors would create a will for themselves, the Roman emperors would seal their will with seven seals. It took seven people to seal it, to make sure that it was... um, it was legitimate, that it was of authority, etc. And when the emperor died, the seal could only then be um, opened by the rightful heir, the one that was worthy to do so, and the seven seals were broken and the will was then executed. For the reader of Revelation in that day, as Christians were experiencing great persecution at that time, This would have drawn their hearts to great comfort because they see now that their God is on the throne and His ultimate will is now going forth as the the seals of the deed, uh, the redemptive deed of all of creation is now being opened and loosened. His final plan, His final act can then come about. It would have been incredibly comforting to Christians at that time. Because they would have been all too familiar with the emperors leaving the world, as it were, to someone else. Their wealth to someone else. Their, uh, their power and prestige to someone else. But ultimately, God the Father has all of creation counted for in this deed, in this scroll. And as one is worthy to take it and to loosen its seals, it now begins to unfold and the judgments begin to pour forward. And in this series of judgments, these are all things that must take place before the consummation of all things to the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to create. This must take place first before that renewal can occur. It is a time that has been talked about throughout the entire Bible. It isn't something new just to the New Testament. The Jewish people throughout the Old Testament knew of a time that was coming. It was called the times of Jacob's troubles or the great distress. It was also known as the great day of the Lord. And you and I are probably familiar with the most common term for it, the great tribulation period. One seven-year period remains from the prophecies of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. This last seven-year period of time is recorded for us here in the Bible from chapter 6 to chapter 19, and the events of that seven-year period will be given to us, outlined for us, articulated for us in these chapters. These events are still yet to come. They are still going to occur. 
For no time in history have these events been fulfilled to to satisfaction, and yet we look forward to these things because these are the precursors to the return of Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate attention getter in the book of Revelation. Remember, it's all about Him. And as we get into these chapters, now we get to uh, explore this incredible symbology and symbolism and the figurative language and the imagery that is given to us. And we're going to take this imagery and use the Old Testament as our key to help us understand what the imagery actually means. And as we begin, we now see that this time is come about, a time that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 13, a time that Jesus articulated very clearly in Matthew 24. And I'm going to give you an assignment for homework tonight, something to do after our time together this evening. I believe there's incredible parallels between Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 6. I'd encourage you to maybe look at both of those chapters side by side and see the parallels. As Jesus was explaining uh, at the Olivet Discourse to his disciples of what was yet going to come before his return, it's almost that we see these events mirrored in the book of Revelation in chapter 6. So it's a fascinating study for you to engage in yourself and to see that Jesus gave us a glimpse of what yet was still going to happen. But as we come to this portion of Scripture, we begin with the seven seals. There are three sets of judgment in the book of Revelation. Now, I know some of these terms may be foreign to you. Maybe you've never heard this before. I'd ask that you read along with us. What we are about to talk about is in the Bible. Many who study the book of Revelation said, I never knew that was in the Bible. It is in the Bible. And we are going to give our best interpretation based upon the Word of God to the imagery that is given to us in these following chapters. And so we are continue in heaven with John. And now the Lamb, Jesus Christ, begins to open the seven seals of that that secured document. And as He does, each time He opens the seal, breaks that seal, I should say, a judgment goes forth on this earth. And this chapter is divided into two sections, the first four and the last three. In fact, there's only six seals in the chapter six itself. The seventh is actually in chapter eight. There's an interlude in chapter seven. I'm really getting ahead of ourselves now. But as we walk through this, we are going to see six of these seven seals broken this evening and the judgment go forth upon the earth. The first four of these seals are known to many as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And as we look at the horse, the rider of the white horse, the rider of the red horse, the rider of the black horse, the rider of the pale horse, we will see that judgments are being poured out upon the earth and there's a progression to it. There are cause and effects to it. And there are events and consequences that occur one after another. We begin in verse 1, if you'll start there with me. And I watched, and when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures who we described for you last time say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! Come! 
And I look and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow. A crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. The the horses are first mentioned in a Old Testament book, the book of Zechariah chapter 1, 7 through 17. They are now given more detail and more characteristic within our chapter here this evening. And as we look at each one individually, we see the very first one who proceeds from the throne room of God on a white horse. And the purpose of him is found in that last phrase in verse 2. He came out conquering and to conquer. Because of the imagery of the white horse and the knowledge that Jesus Christ is going to return on a white horse, many have equated this first horse as the return of Jesus Christ. That would be incorrect. We are at the beginning of the judgments and we know fully and clearly that Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19 on a white horse very prominently and distinguishedly. That being said, we do have some information about this particular rider, that he has a bow, he has a crown, and he rides on a white horse, and his purpose is to, he came to conquering and to conquer. The debate among scholars is, is this referring to a person, or simply a form of judgment, or both? I believe that the unrest that is created on the earth from the first horseman is that of war. Even though war is mentioned the second time, we see conquering and to conquer. But there is more detail given here. He has a bow, but there are no mentions of arrows. And many scholars, and I agree with them, believe that this conquering will occur not by military might, but through political means. That it will be done peacefully, rather than forcefully. And it is calculated. It is strategically planned. There's order to this first horseman that the wars will begin and yet it will be calculated. It will be uh, set in motion strategically and unrest will follow this particular judgment. I agree with those who believe that in this white horse the one who is being released at this moment is the Antichrist himself. We know very clearly that there is something restraining the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul tells us very clearly that the Antichrist cannot come to power until something that is restraining him is removed. I believe that to be the church filled with the Holy Spirit. This is one of the main reasons I believe the rapture of the church must occur before the tribulation period. That restraining force that will not allow the Antichrist to proceed until it is removed. That being said, in this we also have the imagery of a white horse emulating that of what Jesus is going to do but in a deceptive manner. He's given a crown. It is a stephanos, which means that the authority given to him was not that of his own, but it was given to him by another. And he carries a bow, the opposite of the sword, and no arrows are found. 
I believe that at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, we will discover the Antichrist coming upon the scene that was predicted in the Old Testament, the little horn of Daniel, and in the New Testament, the, the man of sin, the man of perdition, the Antichrist. Though Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist is already at work, many Antichrists, the spirit of Antichrist, there is one who is coming. And in the wake of his intervention on the earth, we find that things happen in a very orderly manner. Daniel tells us that he comes in through political means, and Daniel, there's one who's going to sign a covenant with Israel, that little horn that is mentioned there. But in this first white horse, the conquering and conqueror that is taking place here is being done strategically. It is being done through calculation and strategically, and wars are beginning. And the political advancement based upon other portions of Scripture of the Antichrist, I believe he is being released here at this time in this first horse. That is given in the white horse, His authority has been given to him by God to do what he is going to do. And yet he carries a bow. And at this point, there is no military conquest. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'd like to read this out loud so you can see it for yourself. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus, verse 1 of chapter 2, and our being gathered together to him, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or by spoken word or letter uh, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That is a term used for the Antichrist. The son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you of these things? And you know, here he goes to introduce this restraining force, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of the lawless one is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be killed. I mean, I'm sorry. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and the bringing uh, to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This is a precursor. It is interesting to me that Paul spent very little time in the city of Thessalonica, and yet they were already exploring the events of the last days. Let me put it to you this way. In their little discipleship, new believers class, eschatology was talked about, and the Antichrist was warned about. And so I agree with those who see that in this first horse, as the conquering Conquering is allowed to take place. It is at this moment that the Antichrist is revealed. The white horse means that he is coming in a deceptive manner as Jesus would in Revelation 19. His authority has been given to him and he brings it into this world. 
Thessalonians 5.3 states this, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The last seven-year period of time throughout the Bible, there are little pieces of it given to us as we can put together and give a profile of what that last seven years will look like. And it appears that it will start out in a peaceful manner and then it will crest at its three and a half year mark. And then the last three and a half years, which we know to be the great tribulation period, will be a time like the world has never seen before. And the instrument, the one that goes forward is the Antichrist himself. Anti doesn't necessarily mean opposite of, though he is the opposite of. He is not from God, he is from Satan. But it means in place of. He is one who will demand to be worshipped by all. In fact, he will find out in Revelation 13 that he'll resurrect an image to himself and demand that image to be worshipped and allegiance to be given to it. We are going to see that he has a miraculous event where it appears that he has been mortally wounded and then all of a sudden he rises on a third day. I think we've read that someplace before, haven't we? See, Satan doesn't create, he only counterfeits. So he can only counterfeit that which has already taken place. And so to deceive the world, he's going to send forth one who will deceive the world through signs and wonders and so forth. But in the wake of his release, an evil then is upon this earth like the world has never seen before. And in this next judgment, we see the stability of the earth being absolutely turned upside down as peace is taken from the earth in the wake of the rider of the red horse. Let's look with me in verse 3. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out of, out of came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. In the strategic methodology of the Antichrist, we see it go from organized, um, strategic, planned military events to just absolute chaotic confusion, conflict throughout the world. Where peace is removed and war breaks out, skirmishes, battles, rebellions, etc. throughout the entire world and a large sword, this does indicate military conquest throughout the entire world. Now, if you notice the words of Jesus, he prepared us for this duality. In Mark 13, 7 through 8, Jesus said, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, that's the first. Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Then there's this second. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and then earthquakes in various places and there will be famines, but these are yet the beginning of birth pains. So you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, but then chaos is going to break out. Nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, the white horse, the red horse, peace removed from the earth in this last seven-year period. 
And then he goes on to the third seal in verse 5. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarii, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. In the wake of the conflicts on the earth we now see famine begin to grip the land where the most basic elements that are really inexpensive at the time in which this was written now become completely unaffordable. The scales in the hand of the rider of the black horse were weighing scales for trade, for purchasing. You know, so much grain would be put on this side, it would be weighed, and that's how you would determine its cost. Just like you go to the deli today, right? And you ask for a pound of cheese or a pound of sausage or whatever it may be. They weigh it out there for you. And then you pay per pound. A denarii was a whole day's wage. And they have now calculated, discovering what things cost normally at that time, to a denarii, and they found that this would equal an inflation of about a thousand percent. Where oil and wine were luxuries that could not even be obtained, they were beyond financial reach of those who were on the earth. They just didn't have the money for it. So in the wake of these conflicts, in the in the confusion of the stirring of nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, rising up, a famine will enter into the world. A great famine. And food will be extremely expensive during this time of period. And certain things won't even be affordable. Interesting background note for you if you are interested. In AD 92, shortly before the writing of Revelation an acute shortage of cereals together with an abundance of wine in the empire caused Emperor Domitian to order the restrictions of wine cultivation and increased corn growing in order to create a fervor, um, such a fervor it had to be abandoned. The next uh, text may have such situations in mind, meaning that at that time there was already an event in history that people remembered that they had no cereal goods, they had an abundance of wine, and the emperor himself, emperor himself had to say, quit making the wine, only concentrate on the cereals that we can bring down the cost of them and make it affordable to people once again. Jesus is now telling us that in the last days, food will be scarce. There will be a great famine throughout the world. We already know from the the 20th century, I should say, in the wakes of the wars that we saw, World War I and World War II, have you ever seen pictures of Europe after World War II? Astonishing. The devastation. And food had to be brought in from all over the world because they could not sustain themselves at all. The first thing that went was all of the natural elements, water, I should say the basic elements, water, food, etc. 
devastated by the war. Major cities leveled by bombing. If you see pictures of London and Berlin and such, it was unbelievable. There was no infrastructure at all. Magnify that to a worldwide crisis. And you can imagine how costly food is going to become. That's what he is saying here. A famine is going to strike the earth like never before. As one wrote, famine is the inevitable aftermath of war. This will be a major cause of death in the Great Tribulation. The black color of the horse speaks of famine and of death. Which brings us now to the pale horse. And if you look with me in verse 7. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Within this fourth seal, the pale horse rider, the word pale is somewhat um, inaccurate. It should be pale green is the actual color that is demonstrated in the Greek word that is used there. And the, the color specifically was used at that time in other literature forms to describe the putrefaction of human flesh. The rampant diseases, as one became diseased or a body, a member of the body became infected, this color this, that was found in the skin is the same color found in this horse. And a quarter of the earth's population is going to be destroyed. And it's a twofold death, and we must not miss that. It isn't only describing a physical death, but a second death after that as Hades followed him. Death was one, the physical death, but then the judgment that followed after that. Ezekiel told us of a time like this in Ezekiel 14.21, For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But Death in and of itself isn't a finality. Physical death doesn't end everything. It is appointed a man to die once and then go to judgment. For the writer of Hebrews states in Hebrews 9, 27-28, And just as it has been appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, beginning with the one who comes conquering and to conquer. The second horse then, all-out war. The third horse is then famine. And the fourth horse is then pestilence and death that rides upon it and a quarter of the world's population will be destroyed in these 
for judgments alone. If that wasn't enough to sober you up or to ask you to consider the nature of God and the justice of God, the holiness of God, I don't know what will. Undoubtedly, there are many who read these events and think of how is it possible that these things could take place? Why would God do such a thing to His creation? In the fifth seal, we hear the plea of martyrs, those who have been killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. I believe these martyrs are those who are killed during the tribulation period. Those who laid down their lives for Jesus Christ. Many may ask you at one time or another, how is it that God is a loving God and yet He judges people or commits them to hell for all eternity? It is a complete lack of understanding His character that would permit them to ask such a question. I think in this fifth seal, when the martyrs begin to ask for justice, we get a glimpse of why God is doing what He is doing. God here is holding the world accountable for the rebellion that it sought uh, towards Him, that it positioned itself in before Him. It is that rebellion that He is judging. It is that sin that He is judging. They are now reaping what they have sown. God is now holding them responsible and accountable for what they have done. And you wouldn't expect a just God to do anything less than that. I love the illustration used by so many of an individual who has had a crime committed against them and you are now you find yourself before the judge and the one who has committed the crime is brought before the judge and you accuse him of the crime that he has committed The judge finds him guilty, but then because he's a judge of love, he lets that one go who has committed the crime against you. If you were in a court and that happened to you, would you believe that you received justice? No, of course not. Because that judge had to punish that individual for committing the crime against you. He's holding that person accountable for what they had done to you. But if he just arbitrarily dismisses him or lets him go, that is not justice. That is not righteousness. That is not holiness. Now, the only reason that we can stand before that judge and the, God, the judge letting us go is because one came and inserted himself between us and the judge, and that is Christ Jesus. And God, through Jesus, sees his perfection rather than my sinful state. And I am righteous and justified before the Father because of the work of the Son. But an individual who is not in Christ has to stand before God in his or her own righteousness, which is fleeting. It is imperfect. It is fallen. It will never be justified. And therefore they have to be held guilty. God provided a manner of way out 
They chose not to receive it. They stand guilty before him. And now he is holding them accountable for what they have done. There are many articles being written about American children today. I don't know, maybe you've read some of them yourself. How many American children, American teenagers today, have an attitude of entitlement rather than an attitude of gratitude, thankfulness. A lot of them are having great difficulties with behaviors. In fact, schools now are becoming very concerned about the length and the breadth and the depth that they have to go to try to discipline students and the lack of teaching that's taking place because of the necessity of discipline. And as they begin to look through the reasoning of why these children are now behaving the way they are, they quickly discover that in the parents' method of discipline, number one, they were not consistent in applying it, and number two, there was never any consequences that the individual had to suffer for their actions. And as a result you get what you get. One who thinks they're entitled and doesn't have to take responsibility for their own actions. God's not like that. God will hold them accountable. But God also gives grace to anyone who will turn to Christ and repent of their sin and by faith believe in Him can be saved from the wrath that is to come. And we must understand that that God is a just God and He must hold the world accountable and responsible for what it has done. But look with me here in verse 9. As we come to the fifth seal, we see the true evidence of this. And when He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been interesting language that is being used here. First let us notice that the souls of these individuals appear to be waiting in a a place under the altar. The altar that they are referring to here was similar to the altar that they found in the temple and underneath the altar is where the blood of the sacrifices would gather. The the altar had four horns on it and it was constructed in a way that the blood that was spilt upon the altar would then drain underneath it and gather and collect underneath it. And underneath the altar you would see the price that was paid for the sins that were to be covered through the animal sacrifices there at the temple. These souls now occupy that place. They gave their lives for Christ. They laid down their lives for Christ. And they are crying out now, Lord, when will justice take place? When will you avenge our blood? Our blood is now pooled beneath the altar here in heaven. It is our blood and they cry out for justice. A famous rabbi at that time, Rabbi Abaca, 
taught, He who is buried in the land of Israel is as if it were buried beneath the altar. For the whole land of Israel is appropriated for the altar. He who is buried beneath the altar is as if he were buried beneath the throne of glory. It was already in Jewish tradition that that was a sacred place that had significant meaning. And as a result, these are asking for justice. They appeal to God in His true identity as sovereign Lord, holy and true. And then they ask in patient tonality, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then it says each were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until a number, and it's a specific number that God only knows, of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who are to be killed as they had been killed. There's a similar plea found in Psalm 94, 1 through 7. I'd like to read this to you. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up and judge judge of the earth, repay the proud for what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked be exalted? Uh, They pour out their arrogant words and all evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. And I say to that, oh, you are so wrong. God does see. God will avenge. And God will hold them accountable for what they have done. It's important to know that during the tribulation period, there are those who will give their life for their faith in Jesus Christ. Throughout the 2,000 years of the Christian church, there have always been martyrs who have laid down their life for their faith in Christ. But in the last seven-year period of time, it almost seems mandatory. Let me read this for you. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had authority which judgment was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony of, of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or had not received its mark on their foreheads, foreheads or on their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It appears that those who will not commit their allegiance to the Antichrist in the tribulation period will be martyred for their faith in Christ. They appear to be given an ultimatum, pledge allegiance by receiving a mark on the forehand or on the forehead. And if you refuse, you will be executed for that refusal. That's what it is saying here. Many people have told me over the years that if the rapture were to occur, they would then believe in Jesus Christ. And I tell them, if you can't live for Christ now, how are you going to die for him then? They don't have that fortitude. It appears that the Antichrist will call to decision those people that occupy the earth at that time 
and those who resist and choose to follow Christ and to reject his mark will be beheaded for their faith in Jesus Christ. I think that is something that needs to be considered because we will see more of these in chapter 7. But how long, Lord? Given the white robes of righteousness for their faith in Christ, they are asked to rest a little longer until all things are complete. And then he opens the sixth seal, verse 12. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as figs. A fig tree sheds its its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and every one, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks to fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And then the question that we'll close with is, who can stand. The sixth seal, earthquakes. The sun becomes black. The moon like blood. Very reminiscent of the imagery that is given to us in Joel's prophecy that is reiterated by Peter in Acts chapter 2. The stars fell on the earth like a fig tree shaken in the winter gale. The skies vanished Mountains and islands were removed. And people hid themselves, asking the caves to collapse upon themselves. Some years ago, in a Bible study that I was teaching in my parents' garage, we were going through this portion of Scripture, and someone raised their hand in objection and said, this possibly could never happen. It's impossible for this to ever happen, because if this were to ever happen, that would mean the world is going to end. Yes, that's exactly what it means. God is going to judge and is going to deal with the earth in very specific fashion. In Ezekiel 38, verses 19 and 20, such events were talked about. And again, this was laced throughout the Old Testament. And let me just read some passages for you to let you know that this all of a sudden just didn't come about, but was something that was anticipated from the beginning. Ezekiel wrote in chapter 38, verses 19 through 20, For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare... On that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the ground, all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. Isaiah wrote it like this in Isaiah two ten and 11. Enter into the rocks and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty. 
The haughty looks of men shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In Isaiah 13, he wrote this in verses 10 and 11. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened as it's rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked uh, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. In Isaiah 34, he once again writes this, And all the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. Or Joel, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Let me read this for you. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And look at how it ends. Who can endure it? Very similar to the closing words that John writes here. Who can stand at that moment? Within these six seals, we already see the world greatly dealt with. It is in the seventh that seven more judgments are proclaimed in bowls, and then seven more which are trumpets. And the earth is dealt with in a very methodical manner and brought to its knees to the place of almost extinction if it weren't for the return of the Lord to His creation. These things are still yet going to take place. This is the manner in which God is going to judge the earth. One wrote this, Taken as a whole, chapter 6 is one of the most important and pivotal chapters in the entire book. It describes the first six seals and also introduces the seventh seal, which consists of the introduction of the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of the wrath of God found to play out in the remainder of the book. But this should truly challenge us, he said to resist those false teachers who would say, if God is a God of love, how could He judge the world? It also raises the important question contained in the closing words in verse 17. Who can stand? And they went on to write, only those who have availed themselves of the grace of God before the time of judgment will be able to stand when God deals with the earth in this final period of great distress. Those who will be saved in the great tribulation are described in the next chapter as those taken and saved through that time. The judgment of God shown and predicted throughout the Old Testament is now coming to fruition here in the book of Revelation. Those things that lace the Old Testament are consolidated by Jesus there at the uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and a parallel to the events of chapter 6 are given to us by Christ Himself showing us how the world will be dealt with. Think of this. 
the evil one released and beginning to conquer, overcoming. Wars break out. Great chaotic conflicts break out in the wake of his arrival. Famine strikes the earth. Death through pestilence follows the famine. And then we discover that in the sixth seal, we will discover that God himself pulls out from underneath them the natural elements of stability. That's what these elements are. The sun, the moon, the stars, the earth itself, the mountains, the island. He is pulling the last shreds of stability out from underneath the feet of those who have rejected him and the judgment of God is going forth throughout all the world. I believe that these passages are extremely sobering. When I read these passages, I have to first take a moment to thank God for the grace that saved me in Christ. But I can't stop there. If these events are truly going to come upon the earth, and I have no reason to doubt that they are, for everything that God has set up until this time would take place, has taken place. The prophecies that he has made concerning his son's first coming have all come to place perfectly and in order. The events of the second coming will unfold in the exact same manner. And I don't know about you, but I am going to tell you that I do not wish my worst enemy to go through these times. This moves me greatly to be about my father's business and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as an evangelist to anyone who will listen. I don't want to see loved ones. I don't want to see um, those I'm acquainted with, friends or family, suffer such things. To the point, if you read, that they wish that the caves would collapse in upon them, trying to hide from what is occurring and not being able to. And I'm going to tell you that it's going to get even worse. I have no reason to believe that these events are not literal. I think too many individuals, because they are unwilling to grapple with the reality of these things, simply want to dismiss these chapters as allegory. I can't do that. I believe these things are going to take place. And God is going to deal with the world in this manner to judge it prior to the return of Jesus Christ, holding it accountable. Notice that it says here that kings of the earth, great ones in verse 15, everyone, slave and free, hide themselves. There's no social structure anymore. In the light of the incredible, incredible upheaval of natural disasters, there's... there's there's no social structure. They're all hiding. They've all been brought to one level. They've all been humbled to such a degree that they find themselves huddled in a cave. That's the way God is going to deal with unrighteousness. But I thank God for Jesus. I ask that the next time that you come here and we are being led in worship, I would want you to cry out in your heart saying, thank you, Lord, for saving a wretch as me from the wrath that is to come. 
in that question that John asks us, who can stand? Or as Joel preceded it, who can endure? None of us can if it weren't for Jesus Christ. That's why become even more diligent because I believe we are growing ever so closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Be ever so diligent to talk about Him everywhere. Today is the day of salvation, but a time is coming like the world has never seen before, and it's going to be a horrific time. And it should sober us up as the church, and it should cause us to no longer be self-centered and self-absorbed, but begin to look at the things around us as Christ looks at them. Begin to look at the people around us as Christ looks at them and desiring them to enjoy the same salvation we enjoy in Him because someone took that chance with us to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for that. That all eternity now there's a place that is prepared for me a place not prepared with human hands that God himself has prepared in that new heaven, that new earth that I have no business being in but because of Christ, because of Christ I look forward to it and say, O Lord, Maranatha, come quickly.